Welcome to Stakeholder Podcasting. I'm Vanessa Marks and I'm a specialist in stakeholder communications. I have been on a quest to design and deliver the right message to the right stakeholder at the right time. And I'm exploring how other organizations are using technology to connect with their stakeholders. With me today is Andrew de Bloch. He is the project manager of tourism of BirdLife South Africa. And we're going to be having a conversation about how this dynamic global organization has been using technology to communicate with their vast and, need I say, diverse stakeholder base. I know internationally you boast something like 7 million members and 8,000 staff members and 220-odd partners and so on. So you really have um, a very large international stakeholder base. And I'm assuming in South Africa it's a little smaller. Yes, uh, thanks for having me on, Vanessa. I work for BirdLife South Africa, which is a country partner within the broader BirdLife International family. It's the biggest global partnership of organizations in conservation in the world, by my understanding. Um, yes, we are obviously more localized and a bit smaller as a result. We have a, a fairly small team, I guess, of about 35 staff members based here in Johannesburg, but also with a, a node in Cape Town. And we have about 6,000 um, members. Okay. So that's actually very impressive, not only internationally, but also for South Africa. Before I get into asking you a little bit about your stakeholder communications, why is bird conservation so important? If you can conserve birds, you conserve a whole lot of other biodiversity that goes along with that area that you are uh, conserving or that threat that you are dealing with. Birds are also incredibly charismatic and people can relate to birds. So it's a great way to bring people into the conservation fold as well. We, we acknowledge there, there are all sorts of other biodiversity that are important to conserve because everything works in an, in an ecosystem and is interlinked and um, they work together towards the health of that ecosystem. But birds are a really good way to conserve a whole lot of biodiversity at the same time but also to reach people. Okay. So why is it global, though? I mean, we've got our own bird life here. Why do we need to interact with India or America or South America? What is the reasoning why bird life is such an international and global organization? Because birds have wings and birds will fly. And birds are some of the most incredible uh, organisms in terms of the phenomenon of migration. These birds that people see, for instance, um, in Britain, during their summer, they have the swifts and swallows and um, robins and all sorts that are, are in their gardens and they're interacting with. And then during the winter, they disappear. And what do they do? They come all the way down to the southern tip of Africa and they spend their summers down here. So if you're going to be conserving um, a specific species that lives in Britain and in South Africa, you can't do it in one area and not the other. It just doesn't work. Um, and then, of course, along all these migratory flyways, there are all these stopover points where it's incredibly important for birds to refuel. They're undertaking this physiologically exhausting exercise of having to fly thousands and thousands of kilometers and facing all these threats along the way. And if we're not conserving those key spots where they come down to rest, refuel, uh, make sure that they're not being taken over by urbanization and things like that, there's no way that these birds are going to survive. So conserving birds requires a, a network of engaged uh, partners across whole different landscapes. And of course, being an international family, there's huge advantages to learning lessons from each other and seeing how, for instance, people have engaged with communities on the ground in South America. And I can learn lessons from that in South Africa on how we deal with our community issues and 
make sure that communities are on board with conservation. That's just one example, of course. And BirdLife South Africa and BirdLife International obviously have staff and members and so on. But it seems like you've also got quite a diverse stakeholder base. Can you give us a bit more information? I mean, you've just said now, so the bird is going to stop off at a different country. So you've now got different landowners, different um, cultures, different beliefs about birds. How now are you going to connect with these stakeholders and who are all your stakeholders? So our members are certainly our core stakeholders. Um, we derive a, a lot of uh, benefit from having them as members and it's it's a key to, to keep them supporting the organization. And then broader than that, we also have a, a huge support network. I mean, we have a a Facebook group that I think has 40,000 people on it. Of course, in South Africa, birds are not entirely confined to protected areas that are under the authority of a South African national parks or one of the provincial authorities. We have to work with the public to conserve birds because they're often found on public lands. Endangered mm. species like, um, for instance, our three uh, crane species, they are often found in agricultural areas. Um, so to protect those areas, you have to work with the public. And in South Africa, that that comes with a whole diversity of cultures. And then I think our, our, our stakeholders in terms of uh, landowners. Um, I just want to ask you about your communication with your members and how you would differ with, for an example, your landowners. Because I recall before COVID, you used to have just normal classes. I don't think you were involved in webinars and podcasts. Of course, with COVID, you know, most people then gravitated towards using these various platforms on communicating with technology. I can understand you do that with your members today. You'll have a webinar. People can um, sign into the webinar and then, you know, you download it later and people can listen to it as a podcast. How are you going to use or are you using any kind of technology to communicate with, for an example, the communities out there? You mentioned people that living on the wetlands and also your landowners. What are you doing to communicate with them? I think until the, the, the start of the pandemic, the key to our landowner communication was having people on the ground in those communities who who were seen as having a stake there. For instance, we have a uh, a wonderful woman, uh, Karina Pinar, who who lives down in Myrmol, and she uh, is in charge of all of our grassland stewardship work in that area. And uh, she knows the farmers by name. She goes and visits them and has dinner with them and all of that. And, of course, the, the visits during the, the various phases of lockdown have, have uh, waxed and waned, um, but she's set up these very effective uh, WhatsApp groups so people talk to them, talk to each other over, over WhatsApp instead of having these physical meetings all the time. Of course, that's one of the, the wonders we've discovered of, of having these virtual communications is that it cuts down on, on the costs and the time involved in communication. Um, mm. Of course, we miss the face-to-face stuff. And you mentioned our webinars. So, so we've been holding weekly webinars every Tuesday evening since the start of Level 5 last year. Um, and that's, that was really the brainchild of my colleague, uh, Dr. Melissa Whitecross. So we have 42 affiliated bird clubs across South Africa with these birding enthusiasts. And we, as the staff members, often used to go to these clubs and tell them about our work and do presentations at their monthly meetings or their AGMs and things like this. And it was a really popular way for them to engage with us and to keep uh, an affiliation with us. And of course, with with, uh, the pandemic kicking off, that that all fell apart. So Melissa's idea was to run these webinars where instead of one of us just going to a club um, and speaking to whatever it would be, something between 20 and 60 people, why don't we just hold 
one webinar, invite all of the clubs to attend, and we can reach them all and tell them all the same message at the same time. We have between 400 and 500 Zoom logins every single Tuesday evening, you know, maybe just more than one person viewing to a, a screen, you know, you times that out and you add in the the people that are watching on the Facebook live stream as well, as well as the people who watched on YouTube afterwards. Some of our videos have over 2,000 views on YouTube after they've been posted. It's just been an incredible way to to reach people within our core stakeholder group of our members and our, our supporters, but also broader. I mean, if there's a, a subject that speaks to people, we to, to different networks, we go and advertise that. For instance, we've been running this uh, series on birding in our national parks because um, they're obviously very popular places for people to visit. And we've basically partnered with Sandparks and said, we're running this and we don't require anything from you, but um, please would you spread this throughout your networks as well. And we've got the Sandparks Honorary Rangers involved in spreading it to their networks. Well, one thing I do think that has been the upside of COVID is it has certainly introduced to many organizations technology and communication. The example you gave of having to go and visit uh, landowners on a one-on-one basis or sending one uh, expert out to a bird club where there's only 40 people, not only holding your webinar, but you're putting it on as a podcast, and that podcast is there forever. So you're getting much more listenership now. And I think the other beauty, of course, is it's time-based. I can listen to your podcast anytime. I don't have to switch on at 7 o'clock on a Tuesday. It's very convenient for many other people out there. And I think also for you to communicate internationally. So if you've got somebody in Australia, they don't have to worry about the time zone. They can listen to the African Penguin talk or whatever it is anytime they want to. Absolutely. And it's become this incredible repository for us, um, whether it's the YouTube videos or the podcasts that you mentioned. Um, I will just say that we we do have it podcasted. Although I think the presentations are, are very visual based, so the podcasts are essentially the audio just stripped from the presentation, but I think they're still valuable and people do do listen to them. But exactly you're right, it's this incredible repository that, that now we're able to go and if someone asks about a certain issue, whether it's, say, uh, wind farms and how they affect birds, we had a presentation on that a year ago, we can say, Here's a link to uh, a YouTube. What about going to schools and educating people on conservation? Because I think conservation starts at primary schools. So would you be able to do podcasts and have that broadcast at schools to um, not only promote BirdLife SA, but just to promote conserving birds? Yeah, I think you're entirely right. We need to be reaching those younger people. And I think the cliche is that they are the next generation of conservationists. So we do have a very active schools program around our uh, Vakastrum Centre. We reach a few thousand school kids in those communities. they obviously living in and around this incredible wetland, the Vakastrum wetland, where all sorts of incredible species like cranes and flufftails are, are, are in residence. So uh, communities uh, without the proper awareness would be encroaching on this in terms of cattle grazing and unsustainable burning and littering and things like that so it's really important that we are working in these communities and with the kids especially but i think now what with technology i think this is one way in which you can now much more effectively reach the communities and um and schools i think you're right that technology is a great way to meet uh, people where they're at and uh, give people a digestible format of information that appeals to them 
Um, one of the challenges that comes with this uh, is access to this technology. So things like people not having Wi-Fi at home, um, the cell phone data is a, a luxury. So we have to be quite clever and, and uh, specific about how we engage different people. And Yeah, that is certainly a challenge, and I can see the, the problem there. But um, I think technology is solving that problem too. So we'll wait and see what happens with um, things like all the satellite dishes that Elon Musk is uh, sending around the world and so on. We mentioned that you've got a very diverse range of, of stakeholders, you know, members, communities, um, scientists, universities, landowners, and, 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 and. You've, at this moment, really tackled dealing with your members using um, technology and podcasting. Do you see a way forward where this will become much more mainstream for you so you could do a proper stakeholder communication strategy and then say, okay, we're going to be um, sending out a particular message and the people that need to hear this message are the scientists, the landowners, the communities. And you work around that and you send that off and then you do the same with members and so on. Is that something that you think that you'd be working with in the future? Certainly, I think so. Um, and the more we get used to this uh, technology and become more affair with it, the the more we're realizing the potential thereof. And I'll just bring up one specific instance of how we spoke to a specific set of uh, stakeholders um, using technology. One annual event, which we call the virtual Afri- or the African Bird Fair. So that that event we've had to take entirely virtual, and uh, that that is more geared towards um, people who are interested in birds, birding, and conservation. Um, and that side of our work, and we we bring in speakers now. The, the the beauty of virtual events is we can reach people from from all over, whereas previously we had our our African Bird Fair annually at Walter Sisulu National Botanical Gardens, and it was a wonderful event. Don't get me wrong, we had maybe eight hundred people pitch up and exhibitors and a beer tent, and people went on guided bird walks through the gardens, and it was a lovely event. Um, with this virtual bird fair this past weekend, we had a thousand eight hundred people attend from 30 countries across the world, mm-hmm. which we could never do with a physical event. Mm-hmm. So we've been able to reach a huge, broad number of people um, and a diverse group of stakeholders with different topics and, and things. So people can pick and choose what they want to watch and we can um, serve a whole lot of different interests through the bird fair. With regards to technology and equipment, did you have any hiccups with it or what equipment did you use? Did you use professional equipment and did you get any guidance around it? So to begin with, um, when we started the webinars, which was really our first foray into all this virtual technology that we're now embracing, it was very basic. It's just based off Zoom, basically. Uh, We bought a, a Zoom license to have 500 people on, thinking that we were being way over the top. Uh, <laughs> I think we, we probably would have never anticipated the numbers we get every week now, but 500 is often not enough. So that's why we have our Facebook stream as well. You know, starting to get used to virtual backgrounds and playing around with that. I mean, that was that was what we were like at the beginning. And as things grew and we realized that this was really gaining momentum and had real potential, we started uh, upgrading it a bit and getting, you know, actual microphone, proper microphones, so people can hear us clearly and um, using you know ring lights and making sure we're properly lit, but it still very much is a basic exercise. It's still run the same way, and we're not using a studio or any professional equipment yet. Um, yet, <laughs> yeah. I think the the issue we have is that these webinars are are not self sufficient financially. It takes a lot of effort for us to to put in, and, and we've made the decision as an organisation to keep it free. 
So we don't want to be restrictive. We we love having people tune in and having access to the speakers and the information that they they wouldn't otherwise. So we've decided not to monetize it. Um, We have been trying to get some headline sponsors involved, um, especially given the success of the webinars and the huge reach we have. Uh, We haven't been able to attract that, and I think that is the next step once we find out a way to to fund these, to get these webinars funding themselves, um, the next step is to really professionalise it. Right. And I think probably more so getting your other stakeholders involved on technology. You've tasted what it's like to communicate using technology, webinars, podcasts and so on. So I think the next step probably would also to get other stakeholders communicated via these means. Yeah, I think so. Um, we do need to be more deliberate and more strategic about how we use technology I'll, I'll just share that it's uh, with, with birds and birding. It's um, it's got the stigma of being an old person thing. Um, it's a particularly an old white person thing. That is kind of if you look at our, our membership demographics, for instance, we we do struggle to attract uh, young people and people of color, and it's something we're working on more and more. And technology is, I think, the way to reach those people in that demographic. But we don't want to leave our kind of core membership groups behind. But it can be a struggle <laughs> when you're dealing with technology and older people who who are not as IT literate and didn't grow up with this stuff. You know, you, these days you have two, two three-year-olds on iPads whizzing around and playing games. And it's incredible what they can do. And kids are learning coding in school. And the technology is a part of their lives. But for a lot of our core membership, it's not. And we really have to coach people through things very slowly. But, you know, getting back to... Reaching stakeholders using technology, I think you've you've identified, and I agree that reaching young people, people in schools, um, people under thirty, technology really is, um, I think, the key to that. Um, yeah, I think we, we're seeing that in in the way that people are responding to the various technological streams that we've set up. Mm. Well, Andrew, thank you very much for telling us uh, the trials and tribulations that you've had to go through in reaching some of your stakeholders. I do think that going forward, more and more people are going to learn how to get into podcasting and listen to podcasts and how to connect and so on, irrespective of their age. Uh, So I definitely see that as progress. So thank you very much. And once again, you've just experienced stakeholder communication in action. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts. 